0: Open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're over halfway through the gospel of John. John spent 11 chapters, the first three years of Jesus' life, the last 10 chapters about the last three days or six days or so. You know, one of, the, one of uh, our resolutions, Susan and I, we're trying to make it through every Dateline episode ever aired, okay? It, 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 we're up to like episode 600 and something or the other. But what's interesting about the, these true crime documentaries, It, trying to find out the perpetrator, put together the evidence, the police, the, the lawyers, all these sorts of things, it's shocking how similar almost all of them are. Almost everyone, or, or quite often it seems, the perpetrator is caught because they inexplicably return to the scene of the crime. They show up at a candlelight vigil for the victim. They're the ones who report the crime to the police. They're part of the search party that's, that's on the hunt for this missing person. They sit down and give state's evidence. They give, they give testimony they and, and, and when we when we see this over and over and over again, you see this pattern, it, it seems so counterintuitive to us, right? It would seem that the human instinct would be to run away from trouble, but here you have people kind of running back to the to the place where it happened. Now, the same thing we see happening here. In the Gospel of John chapter 12 relates to the raising of Lazarus. Remember last week we talked about the fact that when Lazarus was was raised there was two diametrically opposite reactions. One, many people believed in him. They believed that he was the resurrection and the life. If someone raised your son or daughter or brother or sister from the dead, you would say, "Yeah, I'm going to believe in Jesus." And some of you may not, never mind. It is so so depending on the brother and sister, right? Well, Many people believed. They were like, yes, this is, this is Jesus. But we also saw this equal and opposite reaction where the leaders, they didn't dispute that it happened. though no, they knew it happened. But, but they said, we have to put this down. We've got to shut this down now. We're putting the warrant out for his arrest. We're putting out an APB, so to speak. America's most wanted. If you find Jesus, report it to us because we're going to arrest him and we're going to kill him. Because if people start following him, then heaven knows that might be the end of us, and end of our position, and end of our status, and end of our power. That's where we left off last week. Yet what we are going to find in our text this morning is that Jesus, from a human perspective, inexplicably returns to the scene of this miracle, the scene of this crime, knowing the danger that awaited him there knowing that this is going to set in motion a series of events that will, that will end in his death only six days later, and we have to ask, why? Why does Jesus do this? And as we're going to see, it has something to do with your worship and with mine. So I invite you to stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, if you can stand For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would start to work your Holy Spirit into the fabric of our hearts, our hearts that are often so hardened and calcified and cynical and critical. Lord, we, we pray that we would taste and see anew this morning that you are good. Lord, that we could we could see in response, in the response of Mary, the response you've called all of us to, who have found grace in you. Lord, only you can do that. Only you can make hard hearts soft and turn stone to flesh. So we're asking that you do that now for us. In your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. I think there are two things going on in this text that help us understand why Jesus goes back to the proverbial scene of the crime one of those things we we talked about last week I'm going to mention it in brief then the other the second thing we're going to that's where we're going to camp out today but the first relates to what we talked about last week in terms of the sovereign plan of God I'm not going to say much more about this go back and listen to the sermon last week but look down for a second in verses 9 through 11 of this chapter it kind of desc- John describes this 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 occasion, the aftermath of this criminal, of, of, of this miracle, when Bethany sort of becomes ground zero. It's here that once the, once the miracle has happened, everybody descends upon Bethany because they want to see Lazarus. Um, in fact, the leaders want to kill Lazarus, which, if you think about it, this is not a brain surgeon move, right? Okay, they want to kill Lazarus but they converge. This is the place where there's crime tape, and there's investigative reporting, and people are flocking from all around, and the Jews, the leaders, are on the hunt for Jesus. Tell us where he is, and when we find him, we are going to arrest him, and then we are going to kill him. It kind of reminds me of the hornet's nest. It's just danger everywhere. Interesting, last week, met a couple of guys who were from Wisconsin, but they're down here um, during season here in Florida because they are professional beekeepers. And you didn't know we had a burgeoning beekeeping ministry, but we do. And, and it was great getting to know these guys. They're just hungry for the word and they're going back to their families um, a little later. And I was, I was talking to them about this whole process of, of tending bees or, or whatever the word is, the proper terminology is. And I was asking them about their suits. Like, what do you wear? What's your, what's your garb, your getup? They said, oh, we don't wear any. And I said... Boy, you are from Wisconsin, aren't you? I said, no, what, what do you mean you don't wear Well, we wear the hat, but we don't wear the big suit. And I'm like, well, why don't you wear the suit? And he's like, well, because it's so hot down here. We just And I'm like, well, what protects you from the bees? And he said, well, nothing. Um, we just go in, and I said, don't you get stung? Oh, yeah, just so many times you wouldn't believe it. But our bodies are so immune to it, like we don't respond at all. And I'm just like, you guys have lost your minds, Okay. <laughs> Getting near bees, but then going straight into the hornet's nest, so to speak, where danger lies. That's, that's what's happening here. Look at verse 57 from chapter 11. Remember, whenever you see divisions, chapter divisions in your Bible, as John Piper says, ignore them, okay? Because they weren't there. Verse divisions weren't there when John wrote this. But listen to how this reads, and you kind of get this, just the, the astounding nature of what Jesus does here. Verse 57 Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. They're seeking to arrest him, therefore, because of this reason, he came to Bethany. See, what we learned last week and really what we've been learning all through the Gospel of John Is that Jesus never does anything accidentally? Jesus has this whole thing planned out from start to finish. See, Jesus knows that by returning to Bethany, it's going to set in motion his certain death six days later. It is intentional, it is purposeful, it is deliberate. And it's completely consistent for the reason that Jesus came to earth, and that was to die. To seek and to save that which was lost. He came, John reminds us in the first chapter, he is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. What John's gospel shows us from start to finish is that Jesus is sovereign over every aspect of life. He's sovereign over people. Events, weather patterns, food, places, timing. How many times do we hear hear John comment in this gospel, Jesus' hour had not yet come. Jesus was in total control from start to finish. His death was no accident. While the circumstances around his death, the murderous plot of Caiaphas and the others was tragic, While Caiaphas and his henchmen planned evil, John takes great pains to show us, and we camped out on this last week, that God was in it, over it, under it, through it, all accomplishing and working out his good and sovereign and perfect plan. And it was a reminder to us as believers, it is the same. While we may not always understand God's purposes, while we may not have great clarity as to where this is going and his plan, we know, we know he is absolutely in control. And some might respond by saying, well, Pastor Paul, I just don't know if I could, if I could worship a God who's kind of like that sovereign, that in control. And my response is, how could you worship a God otherwise? What comfort is that to you? What comfort is that to me? to not know that God is involved in every intimate detail, guiding and directing, and that while we may not get the full picture, we can trust that there is one, and he is working. And and again, this text over and over emphasizes that. Now, there's a second reason I think Jesus returns to Bethany, and this is the one we're going to camp out on for today. And it relates to what Jesus wants to show us. Okay, now what's interesting about about this passage, and this will tell us how important this passage is, but in in Matthew 26, which is the parallel account of this story, okay, it's found also in Mark, also in Matthew. In Matthew, it tells us that what this woman did, Mary, will be remembered for till the end of the age. That's what Matthew 26 says. What Mary does will be remembered till the end of the age. And we're studying it this morning as a fulfillment of that promise. So, whatever it is that God wants us to get from this, what John wants us to get from this, it's very important. And I think it has something, I don't think, I'm convinced it has something to do with worship. So, three points this morning. We're going to look at the worship of Mary, the apostasy of Judas, and then the words or response of Jesus. Okay, look at verse 1, the worship of Mary. John situates this for us. It's Passover. Um, in, mere, in merely six days, the Passover lambs are going to be sacrificed in Jerusalem, while the Passover lamb, Jesus, is going to be crucified on Calvary. And here John is, is marking for us that, that Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close. Three years of ministry, three Passovers. And it says here in the text that Lazarus and his family gave a dinner for Jesus. Again, if Jesus raised a member of your family, you'd probably throw a party, right? So so there is a banquet. It's a celebration. It's it's the hardest ticket to get in town. It's that sort of thing. People are coming from all over. Jesus and Lazarus are the guests of honor. What's interesting is the other gospels tell us that this feast was actually at the home of Simon the leper. Now, we don't know if Simon the leper was actually the father to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, or he was a relative or just a close acquaintance. We don't know, but as John MacArthur notes, that had to make for some fascinating Denver conversation, right? I'm Simon. I was healed of leprosy. I'm Lazarus. I was dead and I was raised to life. I'm Jesus and I am God. Okay. I mean, like it's, it's, you have to admit this is like, this is so good. Verse three, it tells us that Mary pulls out the ointment or the perfume. And, and depending on what your background is with ointment and perfume, you can read this in a specific way. I'm I'm in, I'm a child of the seventies. So I'm thinking about my sister's strawberry shortcake perfume. Ladies, you remember this? Oh, like, I mean, just one whiff, and it contaminates the whole house. Like, you were like out of there. This cheap sort of perfume might, might come to mind for you. But nothing could be further from reality in this passage. In verse 3, John reminds us that this is an expensive perfume. And saying this is an expensive perfume is like saying Bill Gates has a big bank account, okay? This, this is the real deal. It, he calls it nard or spikenard. It's a fragrant substance found only, only in the hills of, of northern India. It's rare. It's hard to get. It's, um, it takes time to sort, of, to sort of pull it together. It's an oriental spice. It had to be shipped over great distances. And Judas, and we'll get back to him, helpfully reminds us that this is worth 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages or 30 grand for that context. If you can think about that. It's about 11 ounces, so it's not a, it's not a ton of, of... And we don't know where it came from. We don't know if it was like a family heirloom sort of passed down from generation to generation. We don't know. We, we think they were probably a very wealthy family, so maybe it was just something they had purchased and were, and were saving for a special occasion. It's kind of like having that bottle of Chateau Lafitte 1869 that you pay $230,000 for, right? Okay, That, that thing is something so valuable you wouldn't want to ruin it by actually drinking it, all right? That's th- that, that's the paradox of it. Yet she's bringing it out now. Now it doesn't give us all the details, but I could just imagine that Mary pulls this out this this expensive perfume, this ointment. She's kind of no one really sees her. There's people reclining around the table; their feet are stretched outwards. There's it's a big party. They're reclining on their elbows. And she comes and breaks open this jar. And no one is really tuned into it until, look, look at the verse. And guys, this, John speaks, does he not, as an eyewitness. I, I love the Gospel of John. When it says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That's just the kind of stuff, if only you're there, that you really know. And I imagine at that point, as the fragrance begins to overtake the house, and we're talking about that glorious fragrance. We're talking about, you know, when you walk into Thanksgiving dinner and you just smell, you just smell it coming out or you drive by Whole Foods and you smell Four Rivers Barbecue. That is the goodness, let me tell you. And you're just like, I, I'm, I'm just breathing it in. I can imagine Mary breaking open this ointment and the smell taking over the house and just sort of quiet coming over the gathering because they know something really, really impactful has happened. Everyone stops, and then Mary does a very strange thing. She begins to pour it, where? On Jesus' feet. I don't know what your response is when you hear that. It's kind of like, taking that $230,000 bottle of Chateau Lafite and then like opening it up and serving it at your FSU tailgate in Dixie Cups, okay? It still tastes good, but it's kind of like, that's kind of what? A waste, right? It's a waste. And this is what everybody says. It says in the other gospels that in Matthew and Mark that all the disciples as one sort of rose up and said, what are you doing? Here it has Judas sort of speaking on behalf of the disciples and you can see it written all over their faces. This is a waste. What are you doing? This is, I mean, this is, this is priceless. What are, tell this woman to, what? oh my gosh, she has committed the social and financial, sociological, familial faux pas of all time. On his feet, Mary? What's John trying to show us? Some might say that Mary is so thankful here for what Jesus has done for raising her brother from the dead that she wants to give Jesus a precious gift. And I have, I have no doubt she is incredibly thankful. But here's the problem with, with that kind of thinking. If she is just merely thankful and she wants to give him a gift, what's wrong? Give him the perfume, right, in the bottle. It's worth more there than it is on his, on his feet, for heaven's sake. But I don't think Mary had in mind so much a gift as she did an anointing. See, Mary wasn't giving Jesus a gift because she was thankful. Mary was anointing Jesus because she was worshiping. She recognized Jesus for who he really was the Son of God the resurrection, and the life. She recognized that Jesus doesn't just give life, although he does, he is life. Jesus doesn't just give grace, although he gives grace, he is grace. In the other accounts in Mark and Matthew, it has Mary putting this ointment, this this perfume, on Jesus's head. It's likely that she most most likely put it all over his his body, his head, his his garments, his feet. But John chooses to fo- and, and the reason they do that, by the way, is they want to they want to symbolize, Mark and Matthew, do this idea of Jesus' anointing as a king. Okay, it's about it's about it's about Jesus in that regard, his kingship, his he's, he's Lord. But here it shows Mary putting it on his feet. And the whole idea, and and by the way, we could do a whole other study sometime when we get to John 13 about the washing of the feet. But it's clear that John is focusing here on the response of Mary to the grace of God. Mary's response after coming face to face with he who is the resurrection and the life He who gives grace, he who gives mercy is one of utter and complete humility. It's one of absolute submission. She is, and this is not exaggerating, laying prostate out on the ground. And she's pouring this this expensive, she's pouring pouring dollar bills, 30,000 of them, on Jesus' feet. She's wiping his feet with her hair, which was a very intimate, personable, familiar sort of act for a woman to do to even let her hair down in public, much less to dry the feet off of her master. John is is painting a really lavish picture here for us. She has experienced the lavishness of the grace of God. She has come face to face with it and rightly understood All of us, if we were at that dinner, would be prostate too. She's come face to face with the living God. And she has said, Lord, have mercy on me. Here's a question for all of us, all of us, upper middle class, Anglo Saxon, Kalarn living group here primarily. What sort of response does the lavish grace of God evoke from you? What sort of response does the lavish grace of God evoke from me? You may say, oh, but but Pastor Paul, that's not me. I'm just an unemotional type. I'm very logical and I like spreadsheets and graphs and, and charts and I love theological books and theological categories, but, but I'm just an unaffected kind of guy or lady. I don't, I don't get into that emotional kind of stuff unless, of course, I'm at a football game, then absolutely, right? Or I go to a concert or a movie or a comedy show or I find out I'm going to Disney World. I'm going hunting. I'm going hunting. I mean, besides all those other things where I'm very emotional, I'm just not an emotional person. Guys, emotion and our affections, they aren't the problem. Our problem is not that we don't know how to feel. The problem is that our hearts are dull. See, this is a picture of a lavish, over-the-top, extravagant response because Mary sees... The lavish, over the top, extravagant grace of God in her life. How about you? How about me? How does this impact our worship? I want to talk about that for just a couple minutes. Here, folks, we talk a lot about this idea that worship is not just what happens here in the room where it happens, it's not not just about the worship gathered, it's also about worship scattered, how we live our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, therefore, offer up your bodies as living what? Sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God because this is your spiritual what? Act of worship. So really, everything that we do is a matter of worship. In God's economy, there is no segmentation. There is no secular over here and sacred over here and public over here and private over here. It all belongs to him. All of you, all of me, all of us. How does the extravagant grace of God shape your worship and mine? As it relates to things like our priorities, our hobbies, our hospitality. See, when when, when people have have been gripped by the extravagant grace of God, they want to be hospitable. They want to serve. They want to give. You see, if we find in our lives that our external worship, our worship scattered is shrinking, it is small, that our lives are sort of built upon ourselves and serving our own needs and not looking outward towards others and towards God's kingdom, it's probably a pretty good indication no matter how much we we understand the grace of God, some, th- some synapse is not firing somewhere. How does it impact your worship scattered. This idea of the extravagant grace of God. We say that worship is all life, and that's true. It's more than what happens here, but here I'm talking about on a Sunday morning, but it's not less. Let me say a couple of things about that. Don't take from this text that what Pastor Paul is really talking about, or what Jesus is really talking about in terms of responding in worship is that you must raise your hands or have some kind of public display of outward emotion. I'm not necessarily saying that, <laughs> but I could be saying that. I could be. That's, that's, that's between you and God. We know it's not a litmus test, but at the same time, the person who, who is unaffected, by seeing the truths of God by by listening to his word by fellowshipping with his people something is dis- is mm, something is not connecting in understanding the extravagance of God's grace what's your approach to worship what's mine do are we intentional are we purposeful are we on time? Are we engaged? Do we come at all besides the one out of four Sundays that many evangelicals now attend? And you may say, Pastor Paul, this is like, that's a cultural issue. It's a sociological issue. And we're scattered as people and we have money and we travel and we do this and there's so many options. Guys, let's be honest about something. We do what we want to do, we have a God problem. David Wells is one of my favorite theologians. His books are on our bookstall. Go grab some after this is over. Even if you still want, it'll be okay. All right, God will love you anyway, but I, I would love to get those in your hands. Here's a great quote from David Wells, which I think perfectly captures the issue that we face as a church, in our culture, in our society. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. Weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. Folks, I, I pray as a church, I pray for me, I pray for my own soul, my family, for you, that the weight of God's grace and glory would not rest lightly upon us. Because when we truly experience and see and taste it, our response is more like Mary. See, all of us, I, 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 can, I know at that dinner, I would be the first one to raise my hand and say, excuse me, Jesus. Okay. This, is, this, is, this is an amazing way. This is, this is craziness. But what if, what if, in fact, what if, in fact, that Mary's response is not so strange in the economy of God and his kingdom? But is in fact normative. Normative for someone who's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. All right, second point. Let's look at Judas. Verse 4 says, But, and and here the contrast, John means to make a striking contrast. Here we have the most amazing acts of adoration and worship that's going to be spoken of for thousands of years. And here Judas pops off, doesn't he? Give it to the poor. You know, everybody has a, every party has a pooper. That's why we invited Judas, right? Judas did not know how to leave a tender moment alone. (laughs) Give it to the poor. Now, first, we don't have time to unpack a theology to the poor this morning. That's not the primary purpose of this, but understand something in Jesus's response. That when he, tells, when he tells Judas, the poor you will always have with you, don't mistake that to, to, to mean something pro or con for the way we care for poor people. I would say that in, inerrant in that passage, inerrant in that text, is the expectation that the church will care for the, the poor. That, that it's to be part of the church's mission. And the disciples surely understood it this way, Acts 6. 1 Timothy Timothy 5, we can see examples all across the New Testament. This was part of the heart of of the, the church of Jesus Christ. What John is pointing to, rather, is the response of Judas. What was going on inside for him? Two things. One, John makes it clear, is clearly hypocrisy. Judas is a thief. He wants wants money. He wants to steal it. He wants to sell this for 300 denarii so he can take his 10% off the top, which is what he had been doing all through Jesus' ministry. In fact, materialism and greed had so consumed Judas that not getting this money, Matthew tells us, "What what does Judas do immediately after this story? He goes and sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He doesn't get his 30 grand, but buddy, he's going to get his $1,000. That's how much it's worth. It's a reminder to us, again, of the nature of unbelief. See, Judas had attached himself to Jesus because what he perceived Jesus could do for him, he would give him power and status and wealth and sit at his right hand. But when it becomes clear in these passages that Jesus has no intention of doing that, in fact, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, Judas says, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And guys, that's one of the things that John is warning us about. Typified by money, which can represent any number of things, God I'm in this with you because of what you're going to give me in marriage or what kind of parents you're going to make me or how much success you're going to give me in my job or how much wealth in my back pocket or, or whatever that thing is for you. But when God doesn't give it, because he's got, thank goodness God does not give us all the things we ask for. Thank goodness. When he doesn't give it, We walk away showing we don't understand the grace of God. We don't understand it all. We don't understand our need. We don't understand our lowliness. There's a second issue with Judas, though, and that relates to apostasy. And you may say, what's apostasy or what's an apostate? Very simply, it's someone who's heard the truth, embraced the truth, seemingly for a time or for a season, but walks away. And and we got to think about this. Judas and Mary had had the same front row seat to his ministry. The same access, the same miracles, the same teaching, the same power, the same demonstration of grace. But Judas walks away sad. You know, a lot of times we think about false disciples or false teachers in terms of wrong theology or wrong teaching or heresy or something like that. That does happen, of course, but you know what I find is far more common in Christian circles are people who know the truth, acknowledge the truth, can recite the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, but sit across from you in the office and say, but it doesn't really matter. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I've got a new life to make. I've got a new spouse to pursue. I've got a new something or ever to chase after. See, that's another kind of false disciple. Not one who teaches and believes error, but the one who is morally corrupt, who turns and walks away and departs from the faith because they have not understood and tasted the extravagant grace of God. See, the real tragedy in this text is not merely that Judas betrayed Jesus, although that is a tragedy. The, the real tragedy is that Judas's heart and emotions after having a front row seat in the life of Jesus remain unchanged, unaffected, all to the very end. And we say, how is that possible? How, how is this This portrait of Mary and the portrait of of Judas, belief and unbelief, how is this possible? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is is the way of it. The grace of God is always being proclaimed to those who are being saved, those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to to life. When you hear about the extravagant grace of God this morning, what is your response? Does it lead you to life? Does it lead you to joy and submission and falling prostate at its feet? Or, ah, uh, I've got all that, kinda. And it leads you to death because it hasn't penetrated your heart. Last thing, the response of Jesus, and this will be quick. Verse 7, I think, is the text that the verse that gives sort of closes out the meaning of this passage and helps us understand what form the grace of God ultimately comes to us. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, and this is great, you've got to love this leave her alone. It's an imperative, it's a command, it's not a request. It's not a suggestion. Okay. It's not a multiple choice. He says, I, This is how much her response to my grace is pleasing to me. Leave her alone. Then he says, So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I'm not sure that Mary knew what, you know that she was actually anointing Jesus on his way to death. We don't don't know that. We don't know what was in Mary's heart and mind. But we do know what was in Jesus' heart and mind. We do know that it's very clear that Jesus did not see this triumphal procession that we're going to talk about next week. This was not a triumphal procession Jesus was about to embark on. This is a funeral procession. This is a... This is is a death march to the cross. Jesus is communicating to you, to me, to Judas, to the disciples, to Mary, there's no life for you apart from me giving my life for you. See, you have have a litany of things that you want me to do for you. But here's the most important thing I have done for you, Mary. I'm going to die. And I'm taking your gift and I'm appropriating it as an act of service so that one day when I rise again, you'll look back on this. You'll say, oh, that's what I was doing. Of course, of course, the grace of God is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. What's your response today to the extravagant love and grace of God? of Jesus Christ.